what it means. Getting older as we go. But uh, <clears throat> it really is a, a privilege to be with you again and to open God's Word and look in it together. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. I don't know about you, but uh, we live in some really interesting times, don't we? A lot of tension, a lot of division, a lot of rumbling, a lot of different things going on. And um, both at Anagoa Community Church, where I attend, or where my wife and I attend, and at Nicolay Bible Institute, we're actually in the book of Acts right now. And who would have thought it that uh, a response that Peter gave to those that were challenging him about a miracle that was performed, who would have thought that that would speak directly to the situation that we face in our culture and in our country, in our world today? And so um, if you uh, are in Acts chapter 4, I'm going to give you the kind of the context because we're, we're picking it up kind of midstream. There's a miracle that takes place in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, it's Peter's response to that. And so uh, I'll just fill you in on what's happened in chapter 3. Uh, as the book of Acts actually unfolds at the beginning there, Jesus has now ascended into heaven. He's told his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and wait until the Spirit comes. And so they are in an upper room in Jerusalem when on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit arrives. And with it comes great boldness to witness. And you know, as the Spirit came too, they were given the ability to speak in different languages. And as Peter was explaining to those around how this could possibly be and how this was a fulfillment of the things that had happened and been prophesied in the Old Testament, and this was an outpouring of God's Spirit on his people, as they heard this and recognized that Jesus really was the promised Messiah, dead, crucified, dead, buried, and risen again, 3,000 of them put their faith in Christ that day. The next day is where we are in chapter 3, where John and Peter are on their way to the temple. And they notice there as they're walking in the eastern gate, called the beautiful gate, that there is a man who is there as a beggar. And he's been there for decades and decades. This is a man who was crippled from birth. And as they walked by, as was the custom, he would extend his cup or some, some dish or whatever, expecting some kind of contribution, Peter and, and John stop and begin to talk to him. And as they begin to talk to them, they make a kind of an interesting statement. They say to him, look at us. Kind of an interesting statement to make, don't you think? Wouldn't you think he'd be kind of like trying to make eye contact and see if he could get them to give something to him? But I'm sure after all these years of being there and, and maybe being tired of people walking by and kind of not you know, caring about him. He just doesn't bother to make eye contact. And so maybe the dish is just out there and his, his face is downcast or whatever, and they just say, look at us. And his face brightens maybe a little bit, expecting that they're going to give him some money or something. And then they make this statement, uh, we don't have any money. And you can almost matter. oh, thanks a lot. But what we do have, we give to you. Well, this is going to be interesting, right? What do you have that I need that doesn't involve money, right? And they reach out their hand. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up. And the scripture tells us not only does a man get up, but he does what? If you remember the story, he begins to jump 
praising God for this amazing miracle. And again, when this happens, when there's been a proclamation of the gospel, when there's been a proclamation that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this miracle has taken place, there needs to be an explanation. And so Peter responds to those that are looking at this and they're like, how can this be? In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? I imagine if you and I were there, we might be a little surprised, okay? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You, though, handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know, was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him as you can see. What an amazing proclamation, not only of the explanation for the miracle, but of the gospel. This Jesus whom you handed over to be killed, who was crucified, buried, is now risen again, and it's in his name that this miracle took place place. He goes on to say that this fulfilled the prophecy all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, where God said to Abraham, through your offspring, through your descendants, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. That was fulfilled in Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection provides salvation for all who will come to him and put their faith in him. And so that's where we get to chapter 4. That's the setup for um, Peter's response to this. Because as soon as you make a proclamation like this, that this Jesus that you crucified is now risen, and it's in his name that these miracles happen, there's going to be pushback. And that's exactly what we see happening in chapter 4. So where I want to be today is chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. So if you'd follow along as I read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name Did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Excuse me. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed, and standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Everybody in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any farther among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. An amazing miracle. And as I said before, once there is that kind of proclamation of Jesus and the source of this miracle and what he did and what he accomplished through his death and burial and resurrection, there is going to be pushback. And there was. And this was not from the government. This was not from Rome. This was from the religious leaders. If you remember back when Jesus was alive and on earth, His main opponent were the Pharisees. And they were really concerned about Jesus' interpretation of the law and and why did he heal on the Sabbath and and why didn't his disciples always do the ceremonial washing and all these different kinds of things. So there's a lot of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. But now it has shifted. It still hasn't moved to Rome. That comes later. But now it's the Sadducees that are extremely upset with him. So the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are the the priests and his family, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The main difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees were primarily concerned with political power. They didn't believe in life after death. So the idea of a resurrection was completely heresy to them. They only believed the the Torah, the books of the law, none of the traditions that that were added to that. But when they heard that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, that just pushed them over the edge. And so now we have persecution coming, resistance coming, this time now from the Sadducees. And um, a little dad joke for you so that you can remember the differences, differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. So... The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see. It's good. That's about right for that kind of, you know, old joke, dad joke there, yeah. So now you'll always remember, right? And so we have this resistance. You can imagine these religious leaders. It's only been 50 days 
since Jesus was crucified. And they were thinking, we have finally solved our problem. We got rid of that miracle worker that all the people were flocking to that were gathering around. We finally took care of that problem. Life could go back to normal. Does that sound familiar? Just wanted life to go back to the way it was. And now all of a sudden, it's like deja vu. Cannot believe that we're dealing with this again. We thought we had taken care of the Jesus problem. And now his disciples are doing miracles. They're proclaiming him risen. And they're proclaiming that he is the author of the miracles that are taking place. You can imagine as they went home that night, they're just shaking their heads. So what do we do? Let's throw them into prison. Let's silence them. Let's marginalize them. And tomorrow we'll figure out what to do. And it said that after Peter had explained the reason for the miracle, that the numbers grew to 5,000 men. Now, that is significant. There are historians that say the population in Jerusalem, first century, somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people. Were there some extra people there because of the Passover? Yes. But when you have 5,000 men who have been added to this new movement called The Way, who are now believing in a resurrected Jesus and are listening to the teaching of these disciples, how many women were added? I would imagine probably an equal number, maybe more, because men are less. Well, you know how it goes, right? Okay? So we have got a sizable portion of the population in Jerusalem now that are proclaiming a risen Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees are very perplexed. You could say we have maybe a revolution that's happening here. There's going to be a change. There's going to be an overthrow. Things are shifting. Things are changing. And the thing that we need to understand about this is when Jesus is proclaimed, there will be resistance. But the result is always growth. The church continues to grow. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi when they were looking at the place where it was kind of the portal to Hades that was there? And Jesus said to them, after Peter had made his declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, on that statement, on that rock, on that solid truth, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell, because that's right where they were, this kind of portal to Hades. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a proclamation, there's resistance, and the church explodes. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And there is nothing that can stand against it. I don't know if you have experienced that in your own life where you have began to move in a certain direction in obedience to Christ, changing some things, maybe stepping out in faith. And as soon as you begin to do that, you get some kind of pushback. You get some kind of resistance. If that happens, you can understand this. You are on the right track because that's exactly the pattern that comes. When we move in obedience, when we move toward Christ, when his name is proclaimed, there is going to be 
pushback. But the result is always the same. There is growth because Jesus said, I will build my church. And so have we got ourselves a revolution here? Maybe, maybe not. About 60 years ago, there was a group of musicians that came across the pond from England. They had kind of quirky long hair, kind of sang some folk, pop, rock kinds of stuff. It was kind of a new thing. You might have heard of them. They're known as the, the Beatles. Did you, anybody? Uh, a few of you, all right? <laughs> Maybe you're old. And they sang a song about a revolution. You say you want a revolution, and maybe as I start saying some of these lyrics, your mind will play back, and you'll actually be singing it along in your head. You say you want a revolution? Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You say you've got a real solution? Well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. You ask me for a contribution? Well, you know, we're all doing the best we can. It'll be interesting to see that Peter's proclamation concerning what happened with the healing of this cripple will speak directly to the song that the Beatles wrote and give us our marching orders for what it is for us to follow Christ in a time when the world is in an upheaval. And certainly that is true. So let's pick it up where we left off in chapter 4. It's the next day. The religious leaders bring Peter and John, and they want an explanation. And their, ask, their question they ask to them is this, by what power or what authority or what name have you used to do this? Because certainly you have to rely on something besides yourself. So the response was, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you healed. Why were they concerned about authority? Well, the rabbinical tradition was this. If they were going to make a statement like, this happened because of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and it's by faith in him that this took place, the rabbinical tradition would be, you don't make a statement like that on your own authority. You have to reference somebody greater than you. It's kind of like when you're doing a research paper. Okay? You're writing it there, and you're make, citing different things, and you're making statements, and they go like, wait a minute. Wh where did you get that? Where's your source? You need something greater than you that you can point to that supports and gives credibility to your statement, to your conclusion. And so... By what authority, by what power are you doing this? And they say, the name of Jesus. Which is interesting because that's exactly what the religious leaders said to Jesus when he was here on earth, before he ascended to heaven. As he was healing and casting out demons, they're like, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus never really answered them. He just displayed that authority. Their response would be, he speaks with authority. He speaks on his own. He doesn't reference anybody else. And you know what? The demonstration that he has his own authority is this. When he speaks to the demons, 
They not only listen, but they leave. When he's teaching them the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard that it was said, and he's referring back to the Old Testament law, you shall not murder. And then he says what? But I say to you, you shall not even hate or be angry with your brother. That kind of anger, you've murdered him in your heart. What did Jesus just proclaim when he said, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He's saying that his authority supersedes the law given to Moses. And he goes on. You have heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery already with them in your heart. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say turn the other cheek. Not only love your friends, but love your enemies. And so Jesus always spoke with his own authority, and there was nothing they could do to challenge that because the demonstration of his authority was obvious. The miracles that he did, the demons that would obey, the teaching that he gave was all with authority. And now they're recognizing this in his disciples as well. But what name? Isn't it interesting? that the name of Jesus is now called into question. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, we have this statement concerning the name of Jesus. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is something about the name of Jesus, exalted to the highest place. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And with Peter, filled with God's Spirit, spoke. He said, This miracle took place in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, why did he add the others? Why didn't he say, in the name of Jesus? Well, when we hear Jesus Christ, we almost think of that as his name. Almost like first name, last name. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. It says something about who Jesus is. Christ is a Greek word for what? Messiah, anointed one. So the Hebrew word Messiah, Greek word Christ. So what did they hear? Jesus, Messiah, anointed one, long prophesied one. Of Nazareth? Why that interesting detail? Because again, the prophet said that he would be a Nazarene, raised in Nazareth. So this was all to help them understand, yes, the Jesus that you crucified, the Nazarene, is the long-awaited Messiah 
And it's in his name that this miracle took place. And you, pointing at the religious leaders, you are the ones who rejected this Messiah. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. We understand the cornerstone of a building is the, the first stone that's placed by which everything else is oriented. Everything is then aligned off of that initial cornerstone. The capstone is the final stone that is put in place. So when we talk of Jesus as the cornerstone or the capstone, alpha, omega, beginning, and cornerstone, capstone encompasses everything. So amazing things that Peter proclaimed in that statement. This is done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Question I have for you. What is so polarizing, brings such controversy, even such anger, when the name of Jesus is spoken? We can talk about God, and it doesn't bring that same kind of reaction. A lot of people believe in God. In fact, if you believe the statistics, a majority of us Americans believe in God. But if we start saying the name of Jesus, something changes. Why is that? What is it about the name of Jesus that is so polarizing, that brings such controversy? I hear somebody talking, but I can't quite understand. I'm glad that you're responding. That's good. It's because of the exclusive claims that he makes. We like the idea of a God. It's kind of general. And I can have my idea of what, a, what God is. And you can have your idea of what God is. And we can all be happy that we believe in a God. But oftentimes of our own making, our own design. But then Jesus makes these kinds of statements. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was born, I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the... And then we get really exclusive. No one comes to the Father except by me. In Acts 4.12, what we read this morning, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. These exclusive claims demand that we decide. We can't make Jesus into who we want him to be. He doesn't allow us that option. He claims himself to be very God of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The words I speak are the words the Father have, has given me to speak. The things I do are the things the Father has given me to do. Our greatest understanding of who God is is what Jesus said and did when he was here on earth. 
because they are of one essence. No other name, only Jesus. So let's tie that back into the Beatles song. You say you want a revolution? Well, we all want to change the world. What is that saying? We all recognize one thing, and that is this world is broken. This world is a mess. It needs to change. Everybody recognizes that. Things are not as they ought to be. You say you have a solution? We'd love to see the plan. What did Peter say? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by where we must be saved. What's the plan? Jesus coming to earth, perfect sacrifice, crucified on our behalf, buried and then raised to life to provide forgiveness of sin for all who will come to him. That's the plan. That's the only way. It's not a revolution. It's not, a, it's not overthrowing leadership. It's not trying to create a utopia, utopia on earth. It's a change of heart. That's how we change the world. You asked me for a contribution. Well, we're all doing the best we can, right? What's the best that we can do in God's eyes? The best that we have to offer him is like filthy rags. His perfection, our sinfulness, the best that we have to offer just doesn't cut it. All we bring to the table is our neediness, our sinfulness, our need of a Savior. And when we come in repentance and say, I have nothing, I trust completely in what you have accomplished for me on the cross. That's where we're changed. Our heart is changed. Revolution is, comes in our own life, and the world will start to move in the direction that we want it to go. The rest of the story, as, we, as it's re- recalled there, is just fun to read, isn't it? As you heard that, the religious leaders are just dumbfounded for a couple of reasons. Peter and John are known for what? They're, maybe they know they're fishermen. They grew up in Galilee. Ha <laughs> ha, you know, Galilee. Nazareth. Well, what good can come from Nazareth? Education? No. Status? No. They're just ordinary guys. But how do we explain this? Could they deny it? <laughs> They're going, you know, what are we, we going to say? What are we going to do? We, we, we can't deny it. It's, it's obvious. The man is jumping around. And everybody knows it. What does it say? Everyone in Jerusalem is abuzz about this. This is no small thing. So they confer. They get their little closed-door session. What are we going to say? What are we going to do? I guess the best we can do is tell them, you can no longer speak 
in the name of Jesus. Actually, the first time they don't even use the name Jesus. They said, in this name. And then we have their response. Where he say this, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard that seen and heard are all the things that Jesus taught them. And what they had seen is the Jesus that was crucified is alive and risen. And they cannot stop talking about that. Can you imagine these religious leaders hearing that? Don't you think they thought they spoke for God? And now they're being to say, we can either obey you or we can obey God. So we choose to obey God. Because you do not speak for God. How did that hit those religious leaders? I wonder. But could they respond to that? No. The man was there alive, and it says here, all the people were praising God for what had happened because this man was over 40 years old. And the only conclusion that these religious leaders can come to in regard to all that has taken place is that these men had been with Jesus. That's it. So, what are we to do with this? How does this speak into our situation? As I said at the beginning, our world is in a mess. And there's so much division, so much tension. You know, whether it's in the U.S. or it's in Myanmar or other places around where overthrows and coups and revolutions and things that are going on. How are we to respond? What can we learn from the way that Peter and John were responding, how can we apply that to our situation today? Let's just think about what it was like for them, first century Jerusalem. They were under Roman rule, which was brutal, lacking any kind of compassion. They were also under a Jewish rule that was now persecuting them more directly. They had little, if any, civil freedom, no religious freedom, because they were no longer under the Jewish umbrella. They had stepped outside of that. Judaism was, you know, okayed by the Roman government, but not this new sect, this new cult that was coming out of it. They had no voice in government. They had no access to the educational system. So what'd they do? Was there a plan to lead a revolution? No. Rather to bring revelation. Jesus proclaimed and revealed. Jesus crucified, buried, and risen. The mystery of the ages, how God was going to redeem people, has now been made known, and it's Jesus Christ. No other name by which we must be saved. Savior of the world. See, man's solution is a revolution. God's solution is revelation. Jesus Christ revealed. What should our response be? As we deal with the tensions that are going on, 
And sometimes maybe we get worked up and we want to, you know, change this or get these people out or do this or this should be different. And we can get, we can easily get sucked right into that kind of thought. What if we look at the example that the disciples in the first century did? They came in the name and the authority of Jesus. They were driven and emboldened by the spirit that now lived within them. They chose to obey God rather than men, so obedience to the Father, with the undeniable explanation that they knew Jesus. What if that would be our response? That we would bring revelation to wherever we are, that revelation being Christ alive in us, Christ our hope, his name proclaimed, him represented as Savior of the world. And the only thing that anybody can accuse us of is this. They know and they love Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you work in our world by your spirit as you embolden us. And I pray that you would embolden us to be witnesses of you in our world, that we would be more concerned that people know you than they know our political stand or our views on anything that we might care about here. That more than anything, people would see Christ in us, that we would reveal him to a world that is so desperate for real change, for lasting change. So I pray that as we go through our week, through the time ahead, that that would be center in our thoughts. How can we reveal Jesus to an aching, broken, divided, angry world? And may you, like you did then, bring thousands to yourself through this because we bear your name. And we pray in that powerful name of Jesus. Amen.